Hello, and welcome to Sobercast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. All right, everybody. Could you all take a seat? So, we're going to open up this first session. We'd like to open up with a set-aside prayer. You can join me if you like, if you know it. Um, Jude, thank you, Judy. I just wrote it down because I forgot to print it out and bring it. So, God, please set aside everything I think I know about myself, my illness, the steps, recovery, and above all, you, God, for an open mind and new experience. May I see the truth. So we're going to start with the first session. I'll let you explain. Hi, my name's Laura, and I'm a real alcoholic. Hi, Laura. Great to see everybody here this morning. It's something, you know, when you take time out from your busy lives to come to uh, an event like this. Can everyone hear me? I'm told very often that I don't speak up enough, which I find strange because when I first moved to the UK, I found that wherever I went, I was louder. I'm not American. I'm Canadian, but I was louder than everyone else. (laughs) Maybe it's my years in the UK that whatever. All right, so step one, does everyone in this room know what's wrong with them? You know, for me, I had I had to discover what was wrong with me. And hello, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I thought you were blowing kisses to me. <laughs> Do I know you? <laughs> it took me a long time to discover what was wrong with me, <clears throat> and I'll try not to tell my story because I'm going to need to speak a bit closer. Into telling it later on. Thank you. Is there anyone here who is unsure about what it means to be alcoholic? Well, there's a lot of, in, I, I found a lot of answers in the big book, but as uh, Tim said earlier, I had to listen to alcoholics first. You know, and the same thing happens to me that happened to Tim. My drinking story is much longer. In the end, I, I drank for 32 years. And I know I was an alcoholic before I picked up the first drink in here, you know. My alcoholism is between my two ears. And my very first drink changed my life. But um, I know today, and it says here, in Chapter 3, I don't know if you brought your books or you wish to refer to your books, because this is kind of a workshop sort of thing. It says on, on, on page 30, well, let's go, you know, the step. It's not hanging up here. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol. And then there's this long dash. It's a pause. <laughs> that our lives had become unmanageable. And someone who had only about four or five months dry time more than I did explained to me that she was a little bit of an English major and a grammar person. She said that long dash is like a full stop. She said step one is in two parts. It's two sentences. You know. And the first part was I was powerless over alcohol. Now I never, in my head, powerless didn't really work for me because I came to AA convinced that it was about finding willpower. I was convinced that I didn't have any. And I was convinced that all of you had stopped drinking by willpower. And that somehow you were magically endowed with this power that I didn't have. I was very lost and very deluded. You know. And it took a long time to, for me to discover that many in the rooms did not get sober by trying. Then I heard that people had been struck sober. <laughs> 
And I didn't really, well, I, start, I had to learn to believe them, and I wished that that would happen to me. But I, didn't, I still didn't understand what was wrong with me. And I did not believe in magic. <laughs> I did not believe in magic. But see, I was a person who went through my life from that first drink pretty much unconsciously. You know, I had a lot of um, bad experiences with alcohol, but I never turned around and looked at, looked inside. I was always looking outside. I blamed my drinking, my excesses on outside events. But sitting in AA, consistently for about three months, I started to learn a few things. And slowly I started to concede to my innermost self. That's, that's the line on page 30. We learned we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step of recovery. And of course I've heard many times that step one is the only one you need to get 100%. <laughs> well, I didn't get it 100% the first time. <clears throat> I spent... Five years infrequently trying to stop drinking and coming to AA meetings and being told not to pick up the first drink. (laughs) I didn't even want to stop drinking, but there I'm leaking into my story. So what is powerless over alcohol to me? I was lucky I had some, I I finally got a big book sponsor in... um, they made it, and there were some people in the group that were following this method, and they made it really simple. And they pointed to me, pointed out to me, that the doctor's opinion, the first chapter, which is not called chapter one, and it's numbered in Roman numerals, which I'm sure makes a lot of us skip this extra information. But the doctor, this little doctor, back in the 1930s, who treated so many alcoholics, he, he knew he had a theory in his head that somehow we were allergic to alcohol. But of course, again, I thought I knew better than the AAs. How could I be allergic to alcohol? I could drink tons of this stuff. <laughs> Until this woman, with about four months dry time and had been going to these big book meetings, she pointed out some of the lines. And she talked to me about this craving. And there's one here on 28. So if you want to know the Roman for 28, it's XXVIII. And the doctor says, we believe. So he wasn't, he was working with some other medical professionals. We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. That the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperature. The phenomenon of craving. It took me a long time to understand that. You know, my tat was mush after 32 years of drinking. You know? Phenomenon of craving, but I was got to the group. They told me this is a physical sensation. It's not the word, it's not that doctor uses the word craving to me, in my mind, my experience. The doctor uses the word craving in a different way than we use it, they use it out there. <laughs> the flatlanders. Come on. Like pregnant pregnant women crave ice cream and pickles or whatever, you know. That's a strong desire. That's a head thing. That's a mental thing, right? This craving is different. And I really had to roll it over over in my head because apart from being convinced that this was a question of human willpower, (laughs) I had been convinced that I, for a long time, that I drank too much because I was greedy. I didn't understand. This craving is what happens to me as soon as I touch a drink. 
You know, it could be a sip, it could be a half a glass, certainly the first glass. And some, for some people it takes two or three. But that finally explained to me why the first drink got Enoch. <laughs> it finally explained to me why every time I had, I had to, every time I took a drink or part of a drink, I would have to finish the bottle and possibly go get another one. <laughs> and possibly go get another one. It finally explained that there was a physical reason where it says on page 30 we learned that um, we're bodily and mentally different from other people. You know, I could never really admit that I was different from other people. That explained why I had always over drank. Drunk. That's a tough word for me. <laughs> I can't think of any time in my life where I really drank absolutely normal. Normally, I always overdrank. You know, I didn't make a mess all the time, but I knew in my innermost self that usually I had one too many. <laughs> you know, but that explained it, and the th the effect for of that for me was so liberating. Because I thought it had been my fault that I drank so much. I thought I was a greedy person. And I, I had been in other areas. But, you know, that made me feel ashamed and less than. And when I'm ashamed, I don't reach out for help. I don't want to ask questions. I don't, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I, or I was wearing a really big mask. I want to be as good as everyone else. So I didn't, you know, I didn't want to show this shame. But when I, when I understood, I finally understood why I was powerless over alcohol because of this craving. When I drank it, when I drank it, because of this craving. This craving is, is my, the manifestation of an allergy. That's how my allergy shows up. I don't get sick. I want more. <laughs> but, you know, it's as simple as that. But when it took away the shame... I thought, you know, aha, I'm on to something. <laughs> but no, I thought I was in the right place. And I thought that, that this group, which is a big book group in Cannes, France, um, could help me. That's the physical side of step one. Have I, do, you think, do you have anything to say about the physical? The physical craving? Maybe. Tim Arcolic. I'm letting Laura do the heavy lifting here. I'm, I'll do a bit of decoration after each item. Um, I didn't know that I had a physical craving. First of all, whenever I had a drink, it felt like I was deciding to drink. Uh, when I've had three quarters of a bottle of gin, it feels like I'm deciding to have another gin because something in my mind says, let's have another gin, so I do. So I had trouble with the concept of powerlessness. And there's a marvellous line in the doctor's opinion. Uh, it, it did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life that we were in full flight from reality or were outright mental defectives. And it's terribly important, this, because when I was um, drinking, around, especially around the age of 19, 20, 21, I was very maladjusted to life. I was certainly running from reality. Uh, and my mind, at the end, did not work properly. Uh, when I read something, I would get to the end of the paragraph and not remember what was at the beginning of the paragraph. Now, at 10 years sober, I asked myself, how do I know that I didn't drink crazy amounts just because I was crazy and young and inexperienced and foolish and I hated life so I was running away from it and I'd had so much drink that it had addled my mind and it wasn't working properly. Now that I'm 10 years sober, I have a, at least externally a good life and my mind works properly and reality I can kind of deal with and 
you know, I'm not as happy as I could be, but I know a lot of people who are unhappier, and I recognize that I mustn't drink too much. How do I know that I couldn't drink normally now? How do I know that I couldn't drink reasonable amounts? And what this book says is, well, ask yourself effectively what it's doing. Is It says, ask yourself, well, is there any other explanation other than that's just what your body does that works? Now, option number one, maladjusted to life. So, yeah, I did drink buckets of this stuff when I was very unhappy. But I remember a holiday when I was 19. I was travelling around Europe with someone who I was very fond of. We were going around for six or seven weeks. And I remember sitting uh, in a campsite overlooking Florence. And I had, we had some boxes of wine. And I, I, we'd had an amazing... It was Florence. I had an amazing day. I'd had a lovely time. And I had the first box of wine. We had the first box of wine between us. And I, I got to the zone. I got to the point where there was a click inside me and I relaxed and everything was fine and I wanted to be here forever, perfectly happy. I had the knowledge and the experience by this point that I mustn't overshoot. I mustn't drink too much. I mustn't tip over. And I had the second box of wine. I was already where I needed to be. I didn't notice any physical effect from the second box. It's not like I needed to be drunker. I was perfectly happy, and I still drank too much. I can't blame how much I drank on being unhappy, because when I was happy, I still did it. When my, I can't blame how much I drank on being um, in full flight from reality, because when I was in a reality I was happy with, I still did it. I wanted to remain in that perfect zone, and all I had to do was not drink the next box of wine, one extra glass over the next two hours will be enough to keep me topped up. But no, I have to have the extra box of wine. I go into this dark place, we end up in the most awful argument yet again. And, you know, at the beginning of my drinking, my mind still did function. And I knew after the first couple of times that I drink too much. If only I could stick to the first half of the evening, I would be fine. I wasn't addled by alcohol at this point, but I was absolutely unable to follow my conviction after the first experience that I must, I must limit it somehow. There is no way I can limit it. An allergy in the 1930s meant an abnormal reaction. In other words, a reaction different from the majority. And the majority of people do not suffer from this. I drank too much every single time I drank, regardless of circumstances, regardless of emotional state. And this is why I'm convinced that if I had a drink today, I would drink the same way. I was looking in here for the page reference, but uh, yeah, Tim used the, a good word, ask, ask, ask myself, ask myself, ask yourselves. <laughs> Have you asked yourself enough what happens when you drink? <clears throat> but there's an indication of a test in here. I think it's in here. It's the Marty Man test. It's about the controlled drinking experiment. Bottom 31. <laughs> is it on 31? Yeah, it is 31, 32. And Marty Mann was one of the first women alcoholics in AA. And uh, that's 21. And, um, I heard this after about this after I got sober. I don't think I ever really tried it myself, although, not seriously. Although, in effect, I tried it many, 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 many times where I'd be going out for an evening and I had the vague idea that if I drank too much I would get in trouble or if it was a business function with my husband or other, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to embarrass myself or him. And I would go into these occasions thinking, oh, I'll just have one, two, three, you know, I won't step over that line. 
mean, I really believed it was a question of choice, but that's sort of the second half. Well, no, it's a question of choice of how much I will drink. And uh, this is the test. And I, I know, I know what would happen to me, but it's at the bottom of 31. <clears throat> so if you have any doubts about whether you have the allergy, which is one part of the illness. <clears throat> we do not like to pronounce any individual as alcoholic, but you can quickly diagnose yourself. Step over into the nearest bar room and try some controlled drinking. Try to drink and stop abruptly. Try it more than once. It will not take long for you to decide if you are honest with yourself about it. And it may be worth a bad case of jitters if you get a full knowledge of your condition. So this means going in consciously, <laughs> consciously, to try to control your drinking once you've stopped. Well, I never did that consciously because I found out about this after I got sober. But when I think about this, when I think about the mental exercise in my head, what would happen if I went up to a bar and ordered just one drink? I have no wish to do that. <laughs> but going through it, I know what would happen. But it also gives me this little disgusting feeling, not nausea quite, you know, in the pit of my stomach. And I have a friend who said, it's, who says, you know, I think of this as like going up to the bar and asking, give me a craving. <laughs> Say, give me a beer, a glass of wine. Give me a glass of craving. <laughs> I thought, I think that's kind of cute, you know. But yes, I was deluded. That's another thing you pointed out, Tim. I was deluded for a long time <coughs> about the fact that I chose to drink the next drink. You know, I chose to drink so much. But that was the whole delusion of me being in control of everything. You know, my very first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, they told me I had an illness. <laughs> they told me about the allergy. But as I said, I wouldn't believe them. And because one part of my illness is a, is a huge amount of pride, I was afraid to, to ask people um, what the allergy meant. What the allergy meant. But it's, it's fully explained in this book. And, however, I couldn't go through this book on my own because I have an illness of perception. And so I needed to read it alongside another, another alcoholic, or several, <laughs> that uh, actually understood the message in this book. Yeah, to, to me, the craving uh, does explain a lot of things for which I could not otherwise account. And I think the craving also explains you know, I promised myself, when I was in my da, 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 late 20s, I guess late 20s, early, no, early to mid-20s, um, you know, I was in my first job, and then I met, you know, the man that was going to be my husband, and I was in a crowd of young people, and of course we were with a lot of other drinkers, you know, work hard, play hard. Uh, out in the mountains, I was in western Canada. And at that point, uh, in the summer times, we do canoe trips and, all, and camping outdoors. And a lot of the people, as I said, were heavy drinkers. And I was shocked to see, because my illness hadn't progressed so much, I was shocked to see some of the people spiking their morning coffee so they could get a start to the day. You know. And at that point, you know, 25, 26 years old, I said to them, I'll never go there. Oh, how could they do that, you know? And at that point, <laughs> that's the way I felt. But fast forward about 20 years, and I became a morning drinker. And that's, that also, I believe, was because of the craving. I, could, I didn't decide. I thought I was deciding to pick up that morning drink. But instinctively, the only thing that would quell that craving was a drink. So instinctively, I, I started, to, it didn't start from one day to the next, 
my drinking started earlier and earlier and earlier in the day. You know, on earlier and earlier and earlier in the week. You know, at the, in the beginning, once I discovered alcohol, I, I pretty much never passed up an opportunity to drink it, although I didn't stoop to stealing it out of my parents' liquor cabinet. I was 15 years old. But every time there came an opportunity to drink with friends, I was there. But that usually happened like once a month. Once a month. <laughs> maybe, maybe less. <clears throat> then as I uh, did my studies and uh, I suppose moved away from authoritarian figures and then had the money, my first job, I thought the normal thing to do was to go to work every day and come home and have a drink to relax. But that's what I'd watch my, my parents do. I thought that was just normal, but I didn't realize that, you know, I didn't realize when my drinking had progressed from just on the weekends to every day, you know. But I watch it, I've watched it a lot in other people now that I know what's wrong with me. And I can see them. Um, my favorite example is my mother. And I visit her once in a while. She's over in Canada. <clears throat> and she doesn't appear to have the craving, but she's definitely dependent on that afternoon drink. And, of course, when I'm around, I make her nervous. <laughs> <clears throat> so when I first get there, she hasn't started to drink until, you know, just, you know, cocktail hour, let's call it. But after I've been there for a few days, for some reason, she's used to living alone. She likes it that way. Um, uh, yeah, I make her nervous. Whatever, the situation. And she will start to drink like an hour earlier or an hour earlier. And if something comes between her and her set time of drinking, like the year the battery in the car died at, after the Christmas Eve church service, it was very tense. It was very tense, you know. And recently she said to me, she's almost eight years old, and she's in pretty good health. But she said to me, I can't get sick. I can't get sick. And maybe I'm reading a lot into it, but I know she's very, very afraid of being under the care of someone else who can see her drinking, you know. But she, she can't get sick because she can't go to hospital because they don't serve cocktails in the hospital, you know. But that's because of the craving. The craving makes me want, you know, it makes me want to drink. This is why I know if I start again, if I take that one drink, well, apart from it not being in me, I also know now, I also believe now that it won't be me, the real me that takes the drink. It will be my illness. But that's another, we'll talk about that later possibly. But if I take a drink, first of all, I don't know how much I'll drink after that drink, in, as you said, in that instance, in that drinking episode. But I've also watched people, and they think it might only be, you know, I'll go out of AA for one night or for the weekend, and then I'll come back. <laughs> You know, it's a special occasion. I'll go out for one, one weekend and come back. And I've watched enough people to see, and it says in this book too, it says that uh, the alcoholic, I used to know the page numbers really well. We know that the alcoholic, as long as he stays away from the alcohol, um, reacts pretty much like, like normal men. I don't believe that part, but let's just take it for granted. Oh, 24. Bottom of 22. That's it. Yes, before 24. Okay, thanks. So bottom of page 22. So is there a question? Oh, no, that's not the one I meant, but, yeah, that's the difference. Bottom of page 22, it says, we know, we know 
that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink, as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. I'm not really sure what that means, but (laughs) the important part is we are equally positive that once he takes any alcohol, whatever, into his system, something happens both in the bodily and mental sense which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. The experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. You know, once I Sorry. go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to come in on the on the obsessions. I, I think that's a, a good point to to segue into the obsession side because uh, looking back at my drinking, I'm very clear that I must never have another drink that I may never come back. Therefore, and this is what the book immediately goes on to say, therefore my main problem is my mind stone-cold sober, which would, in inverted commas, make a decision to have a drink. Uh, The only person that would put alcohol inside me, uh, that would put the first drink inside me, is me. Therefore, I am the problem. I've got to make sure that my mind does not say yes to the first drink. So my real problem is not what happens when I drink. My real problem is my mind stone-cold sober. Now, I talked about when I was drinking, when I'd had a drink, it always felt like I had the second drink, the fourth drink, the fourteenth drink as the result of a decision because that's how it feels. And it was like that with every first drink I ever took. It felt like I have just decided to have the first drink. There we go. Now, a decision, I've been taught, is a commitment to action based on a sound analysis of the facts. That is what the decision in step three will be, a commitment to action based on a sound analysis of the facts. Now, my analysis of the facts when I was stone-cold sober was never sound. But also, sometimes there was no analysis. So my question then is, if I was not committing myself to a drink based on a sound analysis of the facts, what was I doing? What I was doing was yielding to an impulse beyond my mental control, which is totally different. And if you're an Al-Anon, you'll discover yourself yielding to impulses beyond your mental control as well when you decide to tell them one more time how to live. Because this time, if you explain it carefully enough, they'll obey finally. And they'll get sober or they'll, get, or they'll do what you want them to do. And the impulse is coming up inside you and you just have to do what it says. There is no arguing with it. And in the, in the big book, the reason I love the big book is it gives you 20 pages between the top of 23 and the top of 44, 21 pages to be strict, where it looks at the mind of the alcoholic stone-cold sober. And the first one is on page 23, when you've got the man with the hammer who hits himself over the head with the hammer because it will dull the pain, he thinks. Now, someone said to me, why did you drink, do you think? And I said, depression, loneliness, anxiety. And he said... Did your drinking improve those three conditions over the long term? And the answer was no. I was more depressed, more lonely, more anxious at the end of my drinking than at the beginning. This is called fallacious reasoning. Um, This is the man with the hammer. The next man is uh, on 20. I'm afraid it's all men. Um, But imagine, if you can, what it must be like being one of these alcoholic men. 26, 27, there is a man who's who goes to see Jung, of all people, probably just up the road from here, um, go and visit the site, say a little prayer. Um, And it's great because this is a man who has religion, whose mind is sorted out, yet there is an impulse within him stronger than his mind, which takes him to a drink. Uh, The next one is on page 32. This is the man of 30 who has the belief He's given up alcohol before. So, he, if he starts again after 25 years, it's perfectly... If it's bad, he'll just stop again. But he's unable to. He believes he has power. And then we have Jim. 
Um, some people say, this is Jim on page 35, we haven't got time to go through the whole story of Jim, but essentially he's made a start in recovery, but he hasn't completed the AA program. And uh, Jim is a little bit neurotic, but nowhere near as neurotic as I was when I was new, and perhaps nowhere near as neurotic as some of you are. Now, Jim's doing reasonably well, but suddenly the thought crosses his mind that a drink would be a good idea, and he believes that if he mixes alcohol with milk, he'll be safe. This is untrue, but it appears to him to be true. And it talks about this a couple of pages earlier as a peculiar mental twist, a twist in reality. If my sobriety depends on my perception of reality remaining untwisted for the rest of my life, good luck. Because I have a twisted perception of reality in all sorts of other respects. So he has a twisted perception of reality and he gets drunk. Um, you look at the next man, the, the, the jaywalker on page uh, 37, um, just like the man with the hammer, the man with the hammer has this impulse that he desperately wants the pain to go, and so he takes the drink, and even though it will make it worse, all he can see is this, this relief five minutes away. And the jaywalker is the same. There will be terrible consequences if he keeps running across the road in front of traffic. But all he can see is the, the temporary thrill. And this is the peculiar lack of, the awful lack of perspective it talks about, I think, in Bill's story, where the thing which is right in front of your face seems so much more important, so much bigger than the thing over there, the consequences. And... So the, the jaywalkers, just like the man with the hammer, the thrill I'm going to get now outweighs the consequences I'm going to get tomorrow or next year. And then you've got Fred, who is the most baffling person, and that is on page 39. Now, he doesn't even take the AA program. He believes that self-knowledge is going to be enough. And he has an amazing life, and he has an amazing day, and he still drinks. There is something deeply wrong with him below the level of consciousness. And with him, it talks about a mental blank spot. So the information doesn't even show up of what happens when he has a drink. A desire to drink hits him, and he follows the desire to drink. The AA program works, as far as I'm concerned, because my mind is no longer in control I'm in touch with forces within me which are stronger than the impulse to drink. When I stand on the edge of a train platform and the train is coming in, I instinctively pull back from the edge of the platform. Not as a mental process, it's instinctive. It's self-preservation. There is something about alcoholism where that self-preservation instinct gets turned off and the other instinct for relief is in charge. And that instinct for relief, the, the, the underlying spiritual condition, if I don't give it relief, it will give itself relief. It will find a way to give itself relief, even if that relief would ultimately kill me. And that is alcoholism. And Sister B.M., who is an amazing speaker, um, she would say, my head would kill me if it didn't need me for transportation. <laughs> now, the truth is that my head will kill me even though it needs, needs me for transportation. That's the tragic truth of alcoholism. Thanks, Tim. <clears throat> yeah, that's one of the first surprising things I heard in AA it was that my head would kill me, and I didn't think... I didn't, I, you know, I had trusted my head for a very long time. And I really did believe that I was in control until I learned otherwise, thank God, by grace, by grace. Yeah, so now, we, now we're getting into the mental side of the illness. So there's two parts to my illness, physical and mental. Has everyone got the physical part? It should be easy enough. I really, I really am, you know, as they say, allergic. I cannot. I have two problems I have. I've lost the power of control of my drinking. And I've lost the power of choice. And on page 30, they talk about 
loss of the power of control. I'm just trying to review the, the, the allergy part, the physical part. I'm bodily different from my fellows. I've lost the power of control. I do realize now that I never had the power of control. Sometimes it looks like um, my drinking was under control, but that was usually from outside sources. <laughs> like there wasn't enough available on the table, in the room, in the building. <coughs> I didn't have enough money. But I never had the power of control. As I said, I always overdrink. Here it is on page 30. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. And no real alcoholic ever recovers control. I tend to think about, about that in relation to the physical allergy. It's my body that tells me to drink more than I need. But this mental one, it's this, the mental twist, the mental twist. <laughs> Very scary. And, and Tim has touched on, uh, how much time do we have for this session? It's how, how long do we have? Well, we had, do we have an hour? Or, I think or have we flogged it? So we've got another, another five, ten minutes. Five minutes, okay. I just didn't want to. To me, now that I understand what's wrong with me, the mental part is so important. When I finally became willing to try to do something about my problem because I thought I could do something about it, and the AAs told me it was an illness, I started seeking medical help. Of course, it's well known nowadays that if you're have a problem with drugs or alcohol, you go to rehab, right? In the end, I went I went into a medical facility to get um, detoxed, let's say, dried out. And I was convinced that once I was dried out, I wouldn't have to drink again. I was convinced that once I was dried out... Five minutes. Five minutes of questions. Okay. I was convinced that once I was dried out, I wouldn't have to drink again. Somehow in, inside me, I thought, you know, it was, you know, drinking the day before, maybe drink the day after. I was not clear on this. I really knew nothing about alcoholism or anything, but <laughs> for that matter. But, yeah, I went into those facilities, and to my consternation, every time I got out, I drank again. But as I said before, I was totally unconscious of what was happening to me. And I was almost past the point of caring. Um, until I got serious about AA, and that was really just by the grace, and started going to meetings. And um, I was about three months dry, and we had a big book workshop meeting. And I heard on this CD, it was based, it's based around some seat recorded workshops. And a fellow called Joe H. was telling, telling a part of his story and how he was working with his sponsor. And his sponsor asked him to list down all the crazy things he had done while he was drinking. And I thought that's what it was all about. That's what I thought getting honest was about. <laughs> this is how little I knew. And so he made a list of all the nutty things he'd done when he was drinking. He'd been in prison nine times and all this stuff. I thought that's what it was all about. That's why he stopped drinking. And his sponsor said, that's all very impressive, but you know, the craziest thing you ever did in your drinking was stone cold sober. You walked out of that prison and straight into a bar. And that really touched me because in fact, that's what I had done. Stone cold sober, coming out of those medical facilities, Stone Cold Sober, dry, as I, dry, walked out of, after 30 days, after 8 days, after however many days, I drank again. And I started waking up and hearing in the rooms, if I'm a real alcoholic, I will drink again. And then I started to, you know, I started exploring what is the alcoholic mind, which is explained in Chapter 3. This strange mental twist that precedes the first drink.
and my my mind will tell me lies just to repeat um, and that's what keeps me in AA to keep my head on straight um, not that other people can always fix my head but um, I think we have five minutes for questions now yes so, so I'll repeat the question back if someone has a question about anything to do with powerlessness on manageability, step one. I'll repeat the question. Well, you, you want to hear the answer. <laughs> Good. Okay. Um, so my my question really was it was about looking at the looking at the disease the disease and the reaction that we have towards alcohol and other compulsive obsessive areas of our lives that we cannot control. So the question is about the impulse which gets us to take the first whatever and how step one can be applied to other areas. I've had to apply step one to all sorts of other areas. A friend of mine says if you have uh, the misfortune to have one addiction with any luck at all you can have five or six. Um, and if you, if you have the fortune to stay sober for some time you may discover all sorts of behaviour patterns even stone cold sober, which will give you enough of a buzz to give you some relief. So it's exactly the same mechanism, as far as I'm concerned, as with alcohol. Uh, when I start, do I carry on whatever it is, even though it is not in my best interests? And even once I know it's not in my best interests to have the first gamble, to have the first cake, to have the first white sugar, to have the first uh, sexual encounter, whatever it is, does knowledge stop me? Or do I make apparently the same mistake again and again and again, knowing even with the track running in your mind, this is a terrible idea, I shouldn't be doing this, why am I doing this, I ought to be able to stop, perhaps I ought to call my sponsor, but oh, I've done it. <laughs> now, if you've ever done that with anything, whether it's e even the matter of trying to control the lives of the people around you, the question is, uh, there is something that you have not got relief from inside. And I believe there's only one problem. Um, there is, our, our solution involves conscious contact with ourselves, with God and with others. And so our problem is conscious disconnection from ourselves, from God and from others. And the alcoholic or addicted mind will do anything to give you a temporary sense of connection until the underlying disconnection is solved, then it's going to pop up everywhere. That's my experience. Thanks. Hi, my name is Julia. I'm an alcoholic. Thank you guys very much. <coughs> I'd love it if you could just explain the paragraph in italics on page 24, because I've been told this is the death sentence. And a lot of people I know write trigger lists, and I'd like you to comment on what trigger lists and at certain times mean, and can we actually predict when we're going to drink again or not with the obsession? And my experience is it came suddenly, it told me the lie, you can drink two tonight, and I believed it, and that kept on for five years till I nearly died. The same thing. I can't, I could not see the truth in the false and, and um, the obsession is so scary to me. And I've been told that this is, a this is kind of a death sentence paragraph. So I'd love it if you could just comment on it. Shall I just read the paragraph first so we're all clear? The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable, comma, at certain times, comma, 
to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago, we are without defence against the first thing. <coughs> and I'll, I'll just say briefly my take on this. If we are unable to remember at certain times what drink will do, it means there are times we can remember. And this is why it's so tricky. Uh, day after day, week after week, month after month, you successfully run the tape forward of what would happen if you drink and you don't have a drink and you think, it's fine, I've got it under control. And then suddenly you fall between the commas, as my sponsor calls it. You have one of the at certain times and you have a day when you can't remember and nothing seems to be able to remind you and you're drunk or you're in the casino or you've had the 14th cake. Um, and you can never tell those days don't look any different than any other days you can't tell when they're going to be do you have anything on that? not a lot all I can say is that I came to AA and I had already lost the power of choice and drink and they told me don't ju just don't drink one day at a time don't pick up the first drink it's the first drink that gets you drunk but I had long since crossed this line. And uh, this is very important to me because, again, once I understood this, it took away the shame. Because when I'm ashamed, I don't ask questions. I don't like to see. I don't like to show people how dumb or stupid or how I don't get it. But once I got this, I understood that this, I really was powerless. I had lost the power of choice. And again, it's almost like, it's a, my drinking, and it was easy, kind of, well, it took a long time, but after 32 years of drinking, I just made a decision, um, I just understood that I had trained myself into this, well, it's a compulsive action, but it was almost like an instinct. It was never a well-thought-out decision to pick up. It was, it, but it wasn't a habit either. It had become part of my survival instincts was to pick up a drink. There was a lady here. What would you suggest between that? I should call my sponsor and oh, I did it. So the question is, when the impulse starts to arise, what do you do? Unfortunately, this is the bad news. It's too late. A couple of weeks earlier, when someone said, you might want to write your step four, that's the point at which the action can be taken. When someone says, you might want to make two or three amends a day rather than one a fortnight. That, when, you, when you're given the instruction, go and take it now. And run back to them saying, I've just taken the instruction, where's the next one? If you do that, the impulse will either not arise or when it arises it will go back down again. But once an impulse beyond my mental control is there, it's too late, so you need to get it earlier. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.